It's 12 o'clock. Hello and welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Tutuzi Ramela in for Jeremy Miags this afternoon. MoneyWeb at Midday, your 30-minute information pack on the latest news headlines. Coming up, the public health sector in the Republic is crumbling, yet doctors who have graduated and are ready to meet demand cannot be absorbed as government, rather, says it has no money to pay them. The ANC is beckoning former President uh, Tabumbeki to campaign for it ahead of the crucial polls in the coming months. This public pressure, will it help or hurt the party? Dr. Levin Doe will help us look at possible outcomes there. And the mining in Daba turns 30 this year. We'll look at the future and the contribution of the mining sector in providing jobs. We'll also take a look at AI and recruitment. Find out how to make yourself stand out from the rest. MoneyWeb at Midday. For all your up-to-date stories. The public health system in South Africa is seemingly coming to a head, and some argue we are well beyond that. In January of 2023, some 1,000 unemployed doctors who faced no prospect of employment took to the streets calling on the health minister to intervene. Fast forward to January 2024, the South African Medical Association Trade Union submitted a list of over 800 doctors who are languishing at home still unemployed. And in response to this, the Health Minister of South Africa, Dr. Joe Patla, yesterday made it known that there's simply no money to employ these doctors who are desperately needed in the public health system. And so how do we reconcile this? Dr. Cedric Sitlango is the General Secretary of Samatu. He joins us for more. Thank you very much, Doc, for your time this afternoon. Let's start perhaps with an understanding of the public health sector. What do we need to understand about that space? Thank you very much, Judy, and thank you for having us. Well, firstly, I think we need to start off at the point of stating that the current state of affairs in the public health system is um, in, a, in a chaos, meaning that it's actually collapsing, if not at a brink of absolute collapse. What we mean by that is you've got a severely understaffed public health care system with very, very minimal critical stuff in terms of your doctors and your nurses and your allies. Now, what happens is the few that are in the system, they have to service you know, the bulk of the population, which is more than 80% mm. that rely on the public health care system. Now, in the far-flung communities, in the villages and the rural areas and uh, in some of the uh, underserviced communities, what you end up finding is two or three doctors that have to cover the entire month worth of shifts day and night. So what that results in is these long queues and moreover, you have these doctors who are now severely exhausted, who have worked beyond you know, uh, any reasonable hours. So, of course, the quality of care then you know, deteriorates. And what then happens is you've got quite a lot of adverse events and adverse outcomes and poor health uh, outcomes. And obviously, this means that people are losing lives. And that's really the state of affairs in the country at the moment. So the idea then of having doctors sitting at home when the need is so dire is simply irreconcilable. I mean, I can share with you, Doc, and to our listeners as well, that um, I recently visited a public health facility uh, seeking help. And to see a specialist doctor, you have to wait some four months. So I went on the 1st of February, I got an appointment for some time in May, right? And so when you speak of the population growth, but nothing being done in terms of capacity, one, doctors, but two, how do we understand 
health minister coming out to say we simply do not have money to pay these doctors when the situation that you have just described is so desperate and the situation that people know of because those who use public health facilities, which is over 80% of the population, as you have pointed out, know exactly the misery of having to go there and the lack of dignity at times. Look, we believe that there is a critical element of failure of government, government as a whole. It's not only the Ministry of Health that is failing here, because we need to probably stop looking at government as components, the limbs, the arms and so forth. We must look at it comprehensively as a whole. Now, we've got the Budget Council that is mandated and responsible for considering the the entire fiscus of the country and allocate funds accordingly. You've got the National Health Council where the minister sits with the nine MECs where they're supposed to look at health in the country at a more global perspective than one province wanting to do its own thing. We also have the extended cabinet where the president sits with the coordination council. Now, surely... All of these issues, when presented in these various uh, instruments of government, and, and, and we should be able to come up with a decisive plan of action to resolve the current problem, but we're not seeing that happening. In fact, what we see happening is government seems to be very myopic, uh, very short-sighted in that at some stage a decision was made that the health workforce needs to be improved, and a decision was taken to train more graduates, more healthcare professionals, to the extent that Others went out to be trained in Cuba. Now, all of these trainees are coming back fully qualified. Where the purpose now is for them to come back and service the population, to work in those communities. And what are they being told? Sorry, there's no job. Go back to the international market. You are okay. free to look, go to the overseas market and find jobs elsewhere. We just think that that's untenable. I mean, it's baffling to imagine that a situation that is so much critically need of the skills, an institution of government that has gone as far as training these doctors when it's time for them to do what they were meant for they suddenly must go somewhere else doc um just finally for us because what is also untenable is the intended unintended consequence we also got a cholera update yesterday where we've recorded 46 suspected cholera cases and five laboratory confirmed cases and in the same breath we're being told there's no need for the public to panic. And so what is the intended, unintended consequence of this here situation not being handled? Uh, look, uh, for us, you know, we're sitting on a ticking time bomb, really. Cholera is one of those uh, uh, ailments or diseases that can spread very rapidly and cause untold damage and harm. And mm-hmm. without proper well-staffed facilities, without the skills, without the nurses and the doctors, we could find ourselves in something similar to the peak of COVID. That's really the reality of a situation where there are no healthcare practitioners. You've got a, a disease that could potentially, you know, rage like wildfire. So we, we are potentially sitting in a in a ticking time bomb. And we really hope that uh, there will be adequate response to curtail these current uh, problems. Doc, thank you very much for your time this afternoon, Dr. Cedric Sihlangu, General Secretary of Samatu. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. So more than twice in 2023, former President Tabombeki made it known that he questions whether he will campaign for the ANC in the upcoming general elections, citing the current state of affairs and lack of renewal of the party in 2024. An entire election year, the ANC is beckoning the former statesman to change his mind. And according to the Sunday Times, the ruling party has tasked former KwaZulu-Natal Provincial Secretary Ndumisen Induli to soften up the former president. Now, this public pressure placed on him 
Will it help or hurt the party? Well, Dr. Levin Doe is a political analyst and he joins us now to take a look at exactly um, those scenarios and what is likely to happen. Thank you very much, Doc, for your time this afternoon. In the event the former president says, yes, I will back the ANC, what difference will that make, particularly to the electorate? Will it be enough to convince you and I? Well, I think the ANC, that has challenges of um, divisions and factionalism, and the ANC that is worried about the 2024 general elections would always want to have a boost in their election campaign. And um, there are many reasons why the ANC would love former President Tabombeke to participate in the elections. One, it will be an indication that um, those who have led the party before are still in support of the party and uh, they are in support of the current leadership. At the same time, they will also want to use that to prove to everyone that um, even though at some point, former President Tabombeki who was not happy with uh, certain things within the ANC, has confidence in the direction that the ANC is taking. They will be doing that, of course, for the purposes of publicity and for the purposes of showing the people that indeed the ANC is on the right track. An election year... Is it about the personalities or the names or is it about South Africans or any citizen of that particular country, right? Because we've got a number of countries that are heading to the polls. But are you meant to woo the electorate or woo those who previously supported you, who are still unsure about you? More so, Dr. Ndor, when you take a look at the lives of South Africans in 2024, which can very well be argued that the lives of the majority of South Africans have not changed. Well, the election season has got its own dynamics. What would be the focus of all political parties now is to ensure that they get maximum support so that they're able to run for government. And, of course, political parties would have their own manifestos, their own programs of action, but uh, what will preoccupy the minds of this leadership would be to ensure that they get the vote. The rest will come later. In a normal situation, or what we expect as ordinary citizens, is that the wishes of the people should come first. And the unfortunate part is that we've got a lot of political parties, they are competing, and they know that uh, if they have to run for government, they should be having sufficient votes on their side. And whatever strategy that they could have at their disposal, indeed they will have to utilize that. And that is why you see the ANC uh, ensuring that the former leaders have to come and join them in this campaign. Mm. So while you have one former president being beckoned, you've got another former president that has been let go from the party. Is this, uh, or rather, what do you perceive this will mean for the ANC? Well, firstly, the ANC should be worried that um, the former president, Jacob Zuma, who has vowed to back another political party. And uh, the ANC should take that very seriously 
and develop a good response to that one. But it also puts the ANC in a very difficult situation. And I think that is why they opted for former President Tabombeki to come and boost the election. Because if we have leaders who have been at the helm of the patent government and who therefore change to say we are not going to be in support of this political party, it has a negative implication on your campaign and on the party. And I think I would expect more of former leaders of the ANC being advised to join the election campaign so that the perception out there would be that even those who led the party in the past are still in support of the organization and indeed of the current leadership and the direction that they're actually taking. Dr. Levindo, thank you very much, sir, for your contribution this afternoon. Dr. Ndo is a political analyst. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. It's 13 minutes after 12 o'clock. Let's take a look at this now. The mining in Daba gathering uh, turns 30 this year. The annual meeting is currently taking place at the end at the Cape Town International Convention Center under the theme Embracing the Power of Positive Disruption, a bold new future for African mining. 30 years later, what role will mining play more so in creating employment? Ravi Naidu is the CEO of the Youth Employment Services and he joins us now to find out uh, from the convention center. Thank you very much, Ravi, for your time this afternoon. Maybe let's start with some reflections, right? So 30 years into it, how would you characterize the South African mining landscape? Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Dudu. Um, so I think this African mining uh, sector remains a sector with a lot of potential. And, uh, you know, so we, we have a lot of critical minerals, platinum, palladium, uh, rare earth minerals, you know, things we need for the world needs for cars and electronics and so on. So I think it remains something with a lot of potential but what we find is obviously for a lot of administration and policy problems, uh, you know, we, we, we have, uh, haven't made the, the most of the potential. But, um, uh, but, but when companies make decisions, what's coming through in the mining job is that 60% of the mining decision is based on potential. And, you know, miners are used to working in very difficult environments, you know, politically, parts of the world that are quite... Uh, uh, you know, quite challenging. So it's quite, it's, it's quite a tough industry. Mm-hmm. And South Africa remains a country with a huge amount of potential. And, uh, and, and I think people are quite optimistic in the long term. I think very realistic in the short, short term that there are challenges. But I think it remains a very important part of the economy and jobs for the long term. When you speak of the long term, you have those who argue that mining is in steep decline, um, not just in South Africa, but across the world as the minerals dissipate. What are the ideas, I guess, in the long term um, to take a look at the future of jobs in the space? Yes. So clearly, uh, so, so I think mining has a very long uh, run still to go, but the types of mining are going to change uh, in terms of the use of technology. So now when you do... Um, uh, deep, deep level mining and mining, it's not so much, you know, people going down with hard hats. It's someone going down with a uh, tablet that controls some uh, remote controlled equipment. So the type of skills uh, that have to be imparted to people in the mining sector are going to be quite different. So mining houses are looking at the theme for the mining um, 
uh, for the mining job is really around positive disruption. So it's also about how we start to integrate um, and, and transfer new skills for that world uh, into this African mining sector in particular. So I think it's really how do mining companies um, do that for their own survival globally. And in South Africa, of course, uh, it's also more important from a transitionary point of view. We have a, you know, a just transition and things like that we would talk about. We have to make these changes. How do we make these changes in a way that are also positive for us? So in the long term, we come out of this much stronger than we are uh, you know, now. Mm-hmm. And in the short term, when we speak of positive changes, what are the conversations in the room? More so when you switch on the television and you see mine workers who are staging dangerous sit-ins underground, right? So if we're talking about being in it for the long haul, are we also talking about the people that mine the minerals and making sure that they're taken care of to stave off that instability? Yes. So, so what is interesting, the CEO of uh, Anglo-American, um, when he was speaking yesterday, he was just confirming that, you know, mining companies, the way they're looking at it is that mining companies are really guests in local communities because you're coming in, you're doing the mining. And as you say, when the mine is spent after many, many years, they leave. So what do they leave behind? And therefore, how do mining companies also demonstrate that they are building communities, local economies? So there's a lot of discussion about... Uh, how they support local agriculture, tourism in their sector, how do they ensure that... Um, so, for example, you know, the Youth Employment Service, yes, which is working with uh, mining houses, part of this transition from mining into building local capacity. We have mining houses who also spend a lot of time building uh, trade skills in their suppliers. So they need, you know, these trade skills uh, for their mine, but they also know that their suppliers need for other things. Um, and then how do they train youth, you know, in renewable and solar energy? Because, you know, they are also, if you look at one of the things mines have had to do, they've had to self-provide for electricity over these last few years. Uh, mm. Since the last two years, they've done 5,000 megawatts of their own power, mines. So there are ways in which you can integrate the business model of the mine okay. with something that is, uh, you know, socially impactful, and goes beyond the life uh, of the mind. So I think that's really the challenge of how they embrace disruption in a way that's very pro um, uh, pro their business model and deals with the, with the, with the issue as, as you say. You know, the, the communities are looking for uh, the demonstrated uh, impact that that they all have beyond the mind. Ravi, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Ravi Naidu is the CEO of the Youth Employment Services. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb Now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Applying for a job is daunting enough. Knowing you're not the only one looking more so in a country with so much unemployment or high unemployment rate, it can somewhat be anxiety-inducing. But wait, there's more. The introduction of AI. AI online recruitment tools are on the rise. However, there's still space for the more traditional way of doing things. So how do you set yourself apart from the rest? 
Advita Naidu is Africa MD at Jack Hammer Global, and she joins us now to give you some tips. Advita, thank you very much for your time uh, this afternoon. So let's start with exactly that, how we need to understand AI and the recruitment space. What's the connection? So I'm glad you asked. And um, I love that. But wait, there's more because there is always more in the world of AI, isn't there? Mm. I think, you know, with the democratized access to AI tools that came first with ChatGPT over a year ago, we saw a lot of people thinking about all the opportunities that opened up without considering the risks and the threats. And it's true, the opportunities are considerable. You can reduce the amount of time to do certain tasks. You can use it to unlock your creativity. And that's as true in the search for a job. You know, you can use it to first write your CV and then tailor it for each role you apply to. Um, and if there are employers out there who are still misguidedly asking for cover letters, you can use mm. it to write one of those. You can take it further. There are tools that will analyze your LinkedIn profile, help you optimize it um, to be more attractive um, and, you know, re- really use it to sell yourself. Sure. You speak of employers who are misguided in terms of asking for a cover letter. <laughs> Is that a thing of the past? Please say it so. You know what? I I wish it was a thing of the past. And I understand why they're still asking for it, because they want to be able to see that you can tailor your application for the role under consideration. But at the same time, I think that there should be a meeting of the minds. They should be able to look at a tailored CV and decide whether this person is going to match the role or you Mm. can tailor your CV individually for each role that you apply to. Um, You know, sometimes repeating the information uh, on a cover letter, it's a little bit of a waste of time, Um, although they may be using it to um, test your communication skills. I think there just needs to be a bit of give and take on both sides. And this um, very stringent requirement of the cover letter should really be a relic of Mm. the past. And and let's get into the nugget of it. How do you beat the bot Mm. and and distinguish yourself (laughs) from the rest? Yeah, I mean, you know, so yes, there's all these opportunities, but on the flip flip side, like you say, you have to beat the bot. These tools mean that applications for positions have increased exponentially, so that reduces your chance of being noticed. Um, A lot of companies are also using filtering software to eliminate CVs or applications that don't meet their keyword requirements, um, and then it's just so easy to apply. So you need to do more to stand out. So the first thing that we would recommend is really optimize your LinkedIn profile. You know, first you can use it through the, the use of AI, but be diligent in maintaining it to stay relevant, personalize it to the degree that's appropriate for your roles and your industries, because hiring managers, they do check candidates out on LinkedIn. So show up well. And it also means choosing your imagery well. There's a lot of marketing real estate on a LinkedIn profile. Mm. So use it well. You can show so much more on a LinkedIn profile than you can on a CV. So mm-hmm. why not use it to your advantage? What about keywords? There's this concept that I re- recently um, learned of, of using the keywords that are on the job profile so that the bot is able to then yeah. pick you. Yeah. So I'm glad to say that's not as prevalent in South Africa as it is in other markets. Mm. Um, I think it really puts people at a disadvantage mm-hmm. when um, recruiters or hiring managers use these applicant tracking systems to automatically kick out um, CVs that don't have the keywords. But as much as you can, do make sure that your CV is relevant. Do bring in the things that they're looking for, because even if they're not using the software, they will also be casting an eye over a CV. And if you're not using the information or the language that is relevant to that recruiter, chances of you being noticed are reduced. So you know, if they talk about certain uh, projects, you know, point out what in your experience um, would speak to what the recruiter is looking for. Mm. 
patience. How, how big of a factor is patience, right? Because, I mean, you take a look at your situation yeah. and you know how desperate it is and you see that nothing is coming through for you. But let's yeah. speak about how to train the mind to just wait <laughs> and rest. So I think it's probably important to note that no one is rejecting you personally, but finding the right role is difficult as is appointing the right person. So get your mindset mm. right. Um, there will be anxiety. There will be frustration. Just stay positive and take it on the chin. Um, I think there are certain things you can do apart from optimizing your LinkedIn profiles and optimizing your CV. You should absolutely be very organized because when you're sending out hundreds of applications a week, if that's the volume that you're working with, it's going to be easy to um, lose track of what you're doing. So keep a spreadsheet just be organized in how you do things so when there is a follow-up you can refer back to that opportunity very quickly it's not going to be messy and you come off looking more professional um i think the thing about patience is it's not just about sending out the applications mm. and waiting for somebody to get back to you um we do need to be networking and don't fall into the trap of thinking it's it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, it's not nepotism, but rather it shows your ability to communicate and manage stakeholders and leverage your networks to make the system work to your advantage. So absolutely get out there and network, show up at events, connect with people on LinkedIn. Don't be transactional about it. Be relational about it. If you are relying on your network to make an introduction for you, do the hard work for them, forward your CV or your profile to the person and say, would you mind passing this on? Here mm. is a link to my profile. Don't expect them to say, oh, I'm going to make an introduction and remember about it three days later mm. because then you are not being proactive and then you are relying on other people to do your job do your job search for you. Mm. What about keeping it short and sharp, more so your CV? Please don't send five pages. Is that a lot? Definitely, definitely don't send five pages. Um, again, you know, make sure it's relevant with all the, the right roles and titles. Um, employers want to know what sets you apart from other people with the same job. So don't just list your roles and responsibilities, which I, I'm sorry to say a lot of executives still do. But talk about what your successes were. What did you do personally that contributed to company success? Talk about your achievements. Be outcomes oriented rather than tasks based um, and then yes absolutely two to three pages of great information that leaves them wanting more is going to do the job mm. Advita, thank you so much for your time and your insights this afternoon Advita Naidu is the Africa MD at Jack Hammer Global Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on Namibia is mourning the death of its president, Hage Gengob. The 82-year-old died after a cancer diagnosis. We reflect on his life and contribution to the Southern African nation. We speak to Henning Malber from the University of Pretoria. Thank you very much, sir, for your time this um, afternoon. So what does the Namibian house look like, as he liked to call it, um, after years of Gengob's reign? Have the renovations and extensions been completed under his watch? Good day, Dudu and listeners. The Namibian house, while we are talking, is in total shock. And that might be a very strong indicator how popular the late President Hage Geingob has been. Despite the fact that the mantra of the Namibian house, which he created, um, deserves a lot of refurbishment and renovations. He was a president of unfulfilled promises, which was not necessarily his sole responsibility to be blamed for. 
He entered office in 2015 at the most unfortunate time for the Namibian economy, with years of drought followed by COVID-19. He was even uh, respected and recognized internationally for the way his government handled the devastating effects of COVID-19. But on balance, while he entered the presidency under the label being the president for prosperity, Namibia is just now back socioeconomically on the same uh, situation or level as it was in 2015 when he entered office. It has the highest unemployment since independence. It's together with South Africa the most unequal society in the world. It has a very high uh, state debt. It uh, has lived on borrowed times and the real tragedy is while this here seems to suggest that Namibia has uh, approached a point of recovery socio-economically, Hage Geingob will not leave office being celebrated for that. Hmm. Will he be celebrated for um, his international relations? For instance, you think about um, not just the heritage and cultural project in Namibia in terms of what happened with the genocide there and trying to get back what was taken from the nation, but also the conversations with South Africa about the disputed Orange River border. Hage Geingob, one needs to keep in mind while he was uh, one of the first struggle generations, maybe one of the last ones, uh, was different from the other veterans of the first struggle generation. He was socialized and educated in the USA. He was an international diplomat. He was uh, interacting in a way that Western policies would interact, which hardly anyone else from the SWAPO leadership did. But he was at the same time very critical of Western double standards. And it played out in the way he was able to occupy the international floors. Um, He was looking for reconciliation and understanding with the neighbors, with South Africa and with Botswana, where there were also territorial fights over the Kasikili bordering islands. So it was uh, regionally a pragmatic policy. It was internationally not necessarily the case. You mentioned the German-Namibian relations, which are very fragile due to the German colonial history and the genocide committed 120 years ago. And one of his last statements before he left this earth was spectacular in criticizing the German government for taking sides with Israel mm. Uh, in the International Court of Justice, and that was reported all over the world. So he didn't mince his words, and that was a very undiplomatic statement, but he spoke out how the people in Namibia feel when it comes to the double standards applied by the Western world. What will it take to lift Namibia from its current state? Like you mentioned, this house is not all the way there. It doesn't have everything in order. What, and not necessarily who, will it take to get that house in order? Good governance in a more serious way, which I would dare to say applies not only to Namibia. I'm speaking Mm. to someone in a country facing similar problems. 
Um, as it looks, Swapo will be re-elected uh, in contrast to the decline of the ANC, and that might open a window of opportunity. Invest more in human resources. Um, be more careful in the way you enter agreements with international mining corporations because the natural resources of Namibia is the one asset the country has. And be very careful to enter those business relations where the top priority is not to pocket money into uh, private officials' uh, uh, pockets, but uh, to make the best deals in the interest of the people. Now, that's admittedly a very vague recipe. Uh, if I would have more concrete recommendations, I wouldn't sit in Sweden. <laughs> Henning, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Henning Malber is with the University of Pretoria. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. So before we go, yesterday on our daily poll, we asked for your views on the NHI bill. Many of you who voted on LinkedIn say you are concerned about implementation. You believe it must be done right. While those who voted on X believe it may not pass the constitutional master. Today at the back of our chat on the role the mining sector can play in creating job, we are asking if you believe the sector still has job creating potential. You can vote on our LinkedIn and X pages. Results will be out on the show tomorrow. Thank you very much for tuning in to MoneyWeb at midday. I'm Tutu Zile Ramela Bakaichu. Pulakio.